بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونشكره ونستعينه ونستغفره ونستهديه ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ولا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أرسله بالحق بشيرا ونذيرا بين يدي الساعة من يطع الله ورسوله فقد رشد ومن يعصهما فقد غوى حتى يفيء إلى أمر الله وإنه لا يضر إلا نفسه ولن يضر الله شيئا وقال الله عز من قائل أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد <تصفيق> Respected listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Last week on Thursday, we started the new Islamic Hijri year. It was the first of Muharram of the 1434th year of Hijra. And today, Till Maghrib was the ninth, and now after Maghrib is actually the tenth of Muharram. I'd like to share a few thoughts about the significance of the Hijrah as a starting point and a mark. For the Islamic calendar. The Islamic calendar is a lunar calendar, and therefore, on an annual basis, it's 11 days shorter than the solar calendar. So, we normally have a total of 354 days, which approximately works out to six months of 30 days and six months of 29 days. And the reason for that is that the lunar cycle, uh, its orbit around the Earth, is, is, accurate, is precisely 29.5 days. And so some months will have 30, some months will have 29. But on average, six months, 30, six months, uh, 29 days. But a total of 11 day, well, a total of 354 days, 11 days shorter than the solar calendar. Uh, the reason I mention that is because uh, this undoubtedly causes the Islamic calendar to shift gradually uh, over the months and over the years, uh, and it does not remain in sync with the solar calendar. And we have the Islamic months occurring at all times of the year, as we witness with Ramadan. In any case, today is the 10th of Muharram, after Maghrib Salah, of the 10th day of the first month of the 1434th 
year of the Islamic calendar. Now, why do Muslims calculate their days and months and why do they tabulate their calendar from the Hijrah as a Lulan calendar? What is so significant about the Hijrah? And what does it mean for us? And as we begin the new Islamic year, what lessons can we learn and draw from the Hijrah? That's what I would like to share a few thoughts about. The Hijrah is a vast topic, and I would be unable to encompass uh, even some of the discussions related to Hijrah. But this is just a very quick and brief summary about some of the more salient aspects of Hijrah, so that we can place the Islamic calendar in its context, and we can understand the significance of the Hijrah for the Muslims as a regular reminder for the beginning of each new year and throughout the months of the Islamic calendar. First of all, the word Hijrah. Most often, the word Hijrah is translated as emigration and Hijrah is considered to be a journey. But in reality, the word Hijrah originally does not mean journeying, travelling, uh, or migrating, emigrating. It doesn't mean this at all. The word, the root letters and the stems of the word Hijrah actually refer to shunning and abandoning and leaving aside. And we see that in the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for instance, in Surah al Muddathir tells the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya ayyuhal muddathir, qum fa'anthir wa rabbaka fa'kabbir wa thiyabaka fa'tahir wa rudza fa'ajr. That, O one who is wrapped in a cloak, rise and mourn, and your Lord glorify, and your clothes purify, and even in impurity, shun, wa rudza fa'ajr. In another verse, وَاصْبِرْ عَلَى مَا يَقُولُونَ وَهْجُرْهُمْ هَجْرًا جَمِيلًا Addressing the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that be patient over what they say. وَهْجُرْهُمْ هَجْرًا جَمِيلًا And shun them, a beautiful shunning. Avoid them, overlook and ignore them. Abandon them, leave them aside and shun them, a beautiful shunning. So, and similarly, uh, Allah quotes uh, Ibrahim والسلام's father telling him to desist counselling him and advising him against paganism and associating partners with Allah and then he tells him وَهْجُرْنِي مَلِيَّ leave me for a while Shun, meaning leave me alone for a, for a while so the original meaning of the words related to hijrah the roots letters of ha, jim, and ra, and the word hajr, is to shun, to leave aside, to abandon, to actually shun. And then the meaning of hijrah, as we understand it, stems from that. To shun, to leave behind, to abandon, 
envoy. So the meaning of emigration and traveling is actually a secondary meaning to the original word of hijrah. And this is why in one beautiful hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As radiyallahu anhuma relates this hadith recorded by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih and by Imam Muslim that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Al-Muslimu man salim al-Muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadih wal-muhajiru man hajara manaha Allahu an that Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As radiyallahu anhuma says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Al-Muslimu man salim al-Muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadih the Muslim is he from whose tongue and from whose hand the Muslims remain safe. Wal-muhajirum, that's the first part of the hadith. And then the last part of the hadith. Wal-muhajirum man hajaramanahallahu an. And the muhajir, the emigrants. Wal-muhajir, man is one. Hajaramanahallahu an who shuns what Allah has forbidden. So the original meaning of hijrah is to abandon, to shun, to leave aside, to leave behind. And the word hijrah, as we know it, to emigrate, to travel away, is actually a secondary meaning. So do keep that in mind. Uh, and that, that's how we can best understand this hadith. That that the true emigrant is one who shuns what Allah has forbidden. So this is the original meaning of uh, the root word related to hijrah. But now obviously, in the context of this discussion and uh, throughout Islamic history, uh, the secondary meaning of hijrah has come to the fore and seems more prominent in our minds than the original meaning of shunning and abandoning. And throughout today's discussion, when I use the word hijrah, of course, we are talking about the famous emigration of the Messenger wasallam and his companions from Mecca to the city of Medina. Now, there are many verses in the Holy Qur'an which speak about the hijrah. Uh, well, uh, we speak about the virtue of the muhajirun. And the muhajirun were those who did the hijrah. But there are two main verses which directly address the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa or related to him about the hijrah. And I will speak on these two verses mainly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Anfal, Addressing the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيُثْبِتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ And recall, remember Allah is addressing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And recall when those who disbelieved were plotting against you. So that they may keep you behind, or that they may slay you, or that they may expel you. And they were plotting, and they plot, and Allah plans, and Allah is the best of planners. 
Now that verse directly addresses a messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and reminds him of the time just before he left the city of Mecca, emigrating to Medina, about the situation in Mecca al-Mukarramah. And for us that's a good starting point. But in order to understand what was happening just before the Prophet ﷺ left, and what compelled him to flee the city, because that's what it was ultimately, it was a flight from the city of Mecca, to preserve his life and his band of followers and his small community. So in order to understand what actually led to that, and what compelled him to leave the city in that manner, we need to go back a few years, just as a quick summary, and understand what was happening. When the Prophet ﷺ received the revelation of the Qur'an in the 40th year of his life, the Prophet ﷺ preached secretly, only to, and quietly, only to the closest members of his family and relatives. And that remained the case for approximately three years. And then, at, in the fourth, third year of his life, the third year of his mission, the Prophet ﷺ was commanded by Allah to proclaim the message loudly and openly to the extended family, the relatives, and beyond to the people of Mecca. And so the Prophet ﷺ fulfilled that command also. Until now, the Prophet ﷺ did not really come to the attention of the wider public in Mecca. But as soon as he started, as soon as he proclaimed the message publicly, and as soon as he started inviting people openly to the religion of Islam, gradually he came, he came to the attention of the elite, the nobility, the wealthy, the merchant class, the clan chieftains, and the ruler, the political elite of Mecca. And since his, he as a person, and his call, his message, his movement, and his growing band of followers were viewed as a threat to the power and position and the wealth and the class structure of Mecca. The elites soon began opposing him, growing more and more bold and intense in their opposition, and eventually hurting and inconveniencing him and his followers. In the fifth year of his mission and prophethood, and the 45th year of his life, the Prophet ﷺ, sensing the growing opposition and hostility, and even the persecution of some of his followers, the Prophet ﷺ advised his followers to travel to the land of Abyssinia, where there was a pious and just Christian king, Najashi. And when he advised his followers, at the beginning, approximately only 12 men and four women, headed by the son-in-law of the Prophet Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiyallahu anhu, along with his wife, the daughter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This band, small band of 16 early Muslims, they left Makkah al-Mukarramah secretly. They feared for their lives and they feared further persecution, even though 
these were noble people. Sayyidina Uthman was a member of the Quraysh. The, his wife was a daughter of the Prophet And yet the persecution was becoming so intense and severe that they had to leave Makkah al-Mukarramah secretly. And they made their way to the to a port town uh, on the coast of the Red Sea. And from there they travelled by ship to ships over to Abyssinia and took refuge with the Christian king Najashi. This, I mention this in some detail because this was actually the first hijrah. This was the first emigration in Islam. And hijrah didn't just begin there. That was the first hijrah for the Muslims from Mecca to Abyssinia. Only 16 people. But this was the first example of a trend in the religions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from time immemorial. The prophets of Allah والسلام, have a history of hijrah, they and their followers. Sayyidina Ibrahim السلام, Sayyidina Lut السلام, Sayyidina Musa السلام, all of them did hijrah. In fact, famously, Inni muhajirun ila rabbi, I am emigrating to my Lord. Sayyidina Ibrahim السلام, did hijrah. Sayyidina Lut السلام, did hijrah. Sayyidina Musa السلام, grew up in the palace of Pharaoh of Fir'aun, and yet he fled. He fled Egypt, fearing for his life. And he led a life for many, many years, for a decade and more, away from his home city, his birthplace. The same with Ibrahim alayhi salam. Hijrah is never easy. And before I continue... Uh, let us just ponder for a moment what hijrah, what immigration actually means. So that when we say uh, the, six, the band of 16 Muslims rose and left Makkah al-Mukarramah and travelled to Abyssinia, what does it actually mean? What should we feel? How should we view it? Well, to put that into context and to help us understand, let us remember that As human beings, we, in Arabic, the word insan, many scholars of lugha, of the Arabic language, and lexicography say that the word insan stems from and is derived from uns. And uns means comfort. Not comforts in the sense of luxury, but comforts in the sense of solace. Insan is called insan because insan, the human, requires company for solace and for comfort. For, their, for the well-being of their mind and their emotions. I mentioned a few weeks ago in the Dars of Bukhari that we have two contradictory forces working at the same time in us. At one and the same time, human beings want company. They want to be with others. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to feel the desolateness 
and the fear and fright of being alone. They want the comfort and the security and the solace of company of other people. But at the same time, then they also value their privacy and their own barriers and borders, their own individuality, and they want to be left alone. So we have these two contradictory forces working in us all the time, and this is what leads to conflict, both in ourselves and with others. And what the teachings of the Qur'an and the teachings of the Noble Messenger wasallam do for us is to provide us with a brilliant balance of how to manage these two contradictory forces of the desire to be with people and yet be alone, of the need for company as well as for solitude. And so insan is called insan because of uns. We require comfort, we require through company, we require solace, we need solace. And a man becomes anise, a human being becomes anise, meaning accustomed to and comfortable with and finding solace in and security in not just other people, not just family, not just loved ones, but even the surroundings, the atmosphere, the bricks and mortar, the ground, the soil, the earth, the normal vision. That's why there is no place like home. And the Prophet ﷺ says it beautifully. In fact, we may experience it to ourselves. Travel. Travel just for a few hours. Or a few days. Let us not even think of travelling for a few weeks. And months or more. But travel just for a few hours, travel just for a few days. And what is our experience? Ask those who lead an apparently jet-setting lifestyle. And they will tell you that we may fly first class, we may be put up in five-star hotels for accommodation, but ultimately this wears off. Because no matter how opulent and luxurious a hotel room may be, it's still just four walls. In a remote place. You're away from your loved ones, your family, your home, your earth, your soil. What you are accustomed to. And no matter how other people may look at the jet-setting lifestyles of the rich and the mobile. They themselves, they grow frustrated of such things. And they would much prefer to be at home to be local, to be with their families and their loved ones, to be in their own comfort zone in their own space. And Prophet ﷺ describes that beautifully. His words have eternal wisdom. And place what I've just said into context and then think of what the Prophet ﷺ says. When we travel, the reason we need such opulent and luxurious accommodation is not because it's so much a holiday it's because travelling is so disruptive it disrupts our food, our drink our sleep our lifestyle, our whole pattern and it takes its toll mentally and physically on a person's mind and body so Prophet what does he say? 
in a hadith later by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih. From Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu. وبالسند المتصل منا إلى الإمام البخاري رحمه الله قال حدثنا عبد الله بن يوسف قال أخبرنا مالك عن سمي مولى أبي بكر عن أبي صالح عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم السفر قطعة من العذاب يمنع أحدكم نومه وطعامه وشرابه فإذا قضى أحدكم نهمته فليعجل إلى أهله I just related the whole sunnah just uh, uh, I relate with a continuous chain from me to Imam Bukhari rahimahullah he says Abdullah ibn Yusuf informed us related to us he said Imam Malik informed us from Sumayy the Mawla, the client of Abu Bakr, from Abu Salih, from Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu said, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, As-safaru qit'atum min al-adhaab. Travelling, journeying, is a portion of punishment. It's actually a piece of the adhaab. What does it do? يَمْنَعُ أَحَدَكُمْ نَوْمَهُ وَطَعَامَهُ وَشَرَابَهُ It prevents one of you from sleeping. From his sleep, from his food, from his drink. So when one of you fulfills his need on the journey, let him make haste in returning to his family. And indeed, that's what it is. Suffer is a qit'atun min al-adhaab, a portion of punishment. Now, here we are only talking about traveling for a few hours or a few days. When we are taken out of our comfort zone, when we are removed from our comfortable, associated, accustomed surroundings of our room, our house, our earth, our soil, our locality, then we feel it. And if that's just for a few hours, imagine the hijrah that others have had to perform. Where... It's not just a question of traveling for a few hours with one's luggage. It's a question of fleeing for one's life, leaving behind one's wealth, one's property, one's possessions, one's memories, one's loved ones, one's family, never knowing whether one will ever be able to return. Put that into perspective. This is why when Sayyidina Ibrahim did hijrah from Ur, in modern-day Iraq. And he travelled to Sham, making many stops and travelling along the whole fertile crescent of, uh, of the ancient era. Sayyidina Ibrahim salam didn't just calmly say, I am travelling. For him it meant leaving behind his family, his birthplace, his home city, his people, his community, everything and everybody. Inni muhajirun ila rabbi, indeed I am emigrating to my Lord. This is what all, all of the Anbiya alayhimu salatu wasalam, whoever did hijrah, not all of them did hijrah, but those that did, for them this is what it meant. And this is what it meant for the people of Makkah al-Mukarramah. Sayyidina Uthman radiyallahu and his band of Emigrants, when they travelled from Mecca to Abyssinia, in those days, today at least, 
there is some comfort and there are facilities and amenities for travelling. In those days, imagine the travel through the desert, across the hostile sea, and then onwards to a strange land. And women also accompanied them, twelve men, four women. And one of them was the daughter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the only reason they travelled was so that they could worship Allah with freedom and in peace. So when we talk about the hijrah, let not the word hijrah be simply a concept of a journey from A to B. It involves all of this. And when we speak about the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, let us not just treat it as a chronology of A happened on that occasion, B happened on such and such an occasion. Rather, let us draw lessons and a great wisdom from it in Surah Hud, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addressing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Allah mentions the stories of many Prophets alayhi wa in the Qur'an. And then after mentioning some of these stories, Allah tells the Prophet ﷺ, uniquely, just him individually, not the followers. The pronoun is not plural. Allah is addressing only his messenger. He says, Allah says, And we do relate to you of the tales of these Prophets. Such stories that through them, we grant steadfastness to your hearts. And in these stories, the truth has come to you, and an admonition, and a reminder for the believers. What that tells us is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala relates these stories of the Prophet ﷺ in order to strengthen the heart of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so that the truth may be clear and apparent even to the messenger. And then beyond him to the wider body of believers, there is an admonition and there is a reminder for the believers in these stories of the Anbiya So if the stories of the former prophets could serve as an inspiration and a means of steadfastness and the strengthening of the heart for Rasulullah wasallam, then imagine how much of an inspiration and how much of a lesson of steadfastness we can also gain and draw from the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And there is an admonition and a reminder for the believers in the story of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam. So in the fifth year of his prophethood, this first group of followers did hijrah to Abyssinia. And then later, a second group followed them of approximately a hundred people in which there were 18 women also. These two groups did hijrah to Abyssinia, and, but the opposition continued. And the Quraysh were now even more incensed that the Muslims were free in foreign lands to worship Allah in their manner, in their chosen way, and to follow their religion, and to abandon the idols of the Quraysh with freedom and with impunity at least free from the Quraysh. So this goaded them into even more intense persecution of the remaining Muslims. And then this led to the boycott in the seventh year of the Prophet ﷺ's prophethood, which eventually ended just before the 50th year of his life and the 10th year of his prophethood. And then 
two tragic incidents occurred. One was the death of the Prophet Wasallam's uncle Abu Talib. Now, and then approximately two months later, according to some narrations, the, his beloved wife, Umm Mu'minin Khadijah anha, also passed away. These two pillars of support left the Prophet in that year. Now, the passing away of Abu Talib, his uncle, is actually of great significance. I've mentioned before in some detail, and we need to understand this again, that Arabia was a tribal society. There was no central authority, there was no rule of law, there was no national security, there was nothing of the sort. A person's life, property, wealth and very being were only guaranteed security by a balance of power amongst clans and tribes. And therefore one needed protection. There was no protection of the state, there was no protection of the law, there was no central authority, nothing of the sort. A person as an individual meant nothing. An individual was only guaranteed security and protection if he or she belonged. And there was no belonging to the state, or the country, or even the city-state. The only belonging there was was to one's family. And then one's immediate family served as protection. But then who guaranteed their security? The extended family. And who guaranteed their security? The clan. And who guaranteed their security? The tribe. And in this way, there was a fine balance of power amongst the tribes and the clans and the families. This is what held things in balance and things in place. A person wouldn't be left alone and another wouldn't fail to take advantage of a person, his or her life and their property and their wealth, out of respect for the law. There was no law. It was only for the fear of retaliation in the future. So the thought was, if I harm him, his family will harm me. And that was only protection. So protection meant a lot. And the Prophet ﷺ, until the 50th year of his life, he had the protection of his uncle Abu Talib. Time and time again, the Quraysh approached his uncle. They could have attacked the Prophet ﷺ as clans and as tribes, but they didn't. And the only reason they didn't was not because, not out of respect for the Prophet ﷺ. Remember, they, they believed him to be an imposter. It was only out of fear of retaliation because of the protection that he was afforded by his uncle Abu Talib. And how was Abu Talib as an individual able to afford him protection? He wasn't able to do so as an individual. He was the head of the clan of Banu Hashim. And being the head of Banu Hashim, he had the full support and their backing. He was a chieftain. So his protection meant the protection of the whole of Banu Hashim. When Abu Talib passed away in the 50th year of Hijrah, 
Prophet ﷺ didn't just lose a beloved uncle and a second father because he grew up in his household. He lost his guarantor and his protector. And the leadership of Banu Hashim, the whole of the clan, shifted from Abu Talib to his brother Abu Lahab. And Abu Lahab was an implacable enemy of the Prophet ﷺ. And he refused to grant him protection. Now, Banu Hashim, following the tribal laws of their society, they had to respect the wishes and the position and the authority of their new chieftain, Abu Lahab. If Abu Lahab refused to guarantee security to the Prophet ﷺ, then the other members of Banu Hashim, even the Muslim ones, were helpless. They could not summon and muster the support of the rest of their clan, because the clan as a whole followed the chieftain. And now the chieftain was Abu Lahab, and he was a sworn enemy of the Messenger ﷺ. What this meant, and this is actually the beginning of the movement of Hijrah, from the time that Abu Talib passed away. The Prophet ﷺ now began looking for protection. He went to Taif. He traveled to Taif. We've heard of the, we know of the story. The reason he traveled to Taif wasn't just to give da'wah. Of course it was to give da'wah. It was to invite them to the religion of Islam. But it was also to gain their protection. Taif, the Quraysh were all powerful in Mecca. But the other famous tribe, which was all powerful in Taif, the city of Taif, was Thaqif. The tribe of Thaqif. And he went to Thaqif and spoke to the chieftains there. They refused to listen to him or grant him protection. They sent the streets urchins after him who pelted him with stones. And unfortunately, he bled profusely on that day, so much so that he, his shoes were clogged with his own blood. And he fell down unconscious. And we know of the story. I, I won't be done of time to go into it in detail. But the reason he went to Daif was to invite them and also to seek and gain their protection. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, when he left, he actually requested them, one, that please do not inform the Quraysh of your refusal to grant me protection. Please, just keep it to yourselves. Another thing which he requested from them is to let him leave in peace. But they did not comply or accede to any of these two requests. They gleefully sent word to Quraysh that Muhammad came to us begging for protection and we have refused him. This was a signal to the Quraysh that now you can do what you want with him. Even we refuse to back him or to support him or grant him protection. One. Secondly, they did not let him leave in peace. Rather, they sent the streets urchins after him, and we know what happened. When the Prophet ﷺ returned to Mecca, he was actually fearful. He could not enter his home city, because he no longer had the protection of his own clan, Banu Hashim. Nor did he have the protection of any other clan. So he couldn't actually enter Mecca al-Mukarramah. It was only when he appealed to one of his distant cousins... Mut'im ibn Adi, who was from the clan of Nawfal. 
And this was interesting. If you recall a few weeks ago, I, uh, in fact on two, three occasions now, I've explained that in the boycott in the seventh year of Hijrah, Banu Abd shams the clan of Abd shams and Banu Nawfal, the clan of Nawfal, they sided with the rest of the Quraysh against Banu Hashim. And Banu Hashim were only supported by their other cousins, the Banu Muttalib, who were very weak. But Banu Nawfal, these were very close cousins, because Nawfal, Abd shams Hashim, and Muttalib were four sons of Abd Manaf. And they were supposed to be four clans who stood together. However, over time, they fell apart. And especially in relation to the matter of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when Banu Hashim refused to hand over the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and to renounce their protection for him, the others abandoned and shunned Banu Hashim, the clan of Hashim, headed by Abdul Muttalib. And he appealed to his closest cousins, the other three closest clans, the Abd Shams, the Nawfal, and to the Muttalib. But only Muttalib joined him, and Abd Shams and Nawfal, they sided with the rest of Quraysh. And Abu Lahab was the only one from the clan of Hashim who went over to the rest of Quraysh. So on that occasion, the clan of Nawfal opposed the Prophet ﷺ a few years before. Now in the 50th year of his life, he couldn't enter the city of Mecca without protection. He appealed to various tribes, leaders and clans, but all refused. Imagine the apparently helpless state of the Prophet ﷺ. Wallahi, when you look at this history, and then you consider in retrospect, and with hindsight, what became, what transpired, and what happened. Allahu Akbar, this was a miracle of Rasulullah he could not enter his home city. Everyone refused protection. He appealed to one of his cousins, Mut'im ibn Adi, who was from the clan of Nawfal. Even though the clan of Nawfal had joined in the boycott a few years earlier, and had opposed the Prophet ﷺ, when the Prophet ﷺ appealed to Mut'im, he, even though he was a non-Muslim, he was a pagan, he did not believe the Prophet ﷺ to be a messenger. But still, the sense of honor and dignity and pride and Arab hospitality and concern stirred in him. And he told the Prophet ﷺ, even though he wasn't a believer, even though he remained a pagan, he said, I grant you protection, you may enter the city. He then went with his four sons they armed themselves, drew their swords, and accompanied the Prophet ﷺ into the city of Mecca, took him to the Mataf, took him to the Haram, Al-Masjid Al-Haram, and then Mut'im ibn Adi posted each one of his four sons at the four corners of the Kaaba, standing in on guard whilst Prophet ﷺ performed Tawaf. And then Mut'im ibn Adi announced to everybody that I grant Muhammad ibn Abdullah my protection. Now what that meant is that Mut'im ibn Adi was supported by his sons. But no one would dare attack Mut'im ibn Adi because of the support for his, by, from his sons. But they were just five people. But then the support of his immediate family meant the support of his clan. And the support of the whole of Nawfal meant 
the support of the Quraysh. Tacitly, they may not have supported him, but again it was that fine balance of power. No one would be able to do anything. So the Prophet imagine the Prophet ﷺ could not re-enter his own birthplace, his beloved city of Mecca, without appealing for the for protection from a pagan Mut'im ibn Adi. Then the Prophet ﷺ continued to seek protection. Because Mut'im ibn Adi, being a pagan, could renounce his protection at any moment. And he was still not just seeking protection, but inviting everybody. Then the Prophet ﷺ, in that same year, in the, sea, in the season of Hajj, a strange thing happened. Until now, the Prophet ﷺ traveled to Thaqif in Taif, traveled to other clans and tribes, even surrounding Mecca. He visited all the clans of Mecca, inviting them to Islam and asking them for protection. Collectively, they all refused to believe and they all refused to grant him protection. Individually, some people followed him and embraced his religion, but they weren't in a position to give him any protection. So whoever he approached, they refused. And in Hajj, every year, remember the pagans still continued with their rites and rituals of Hajj. In the season of Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ would visit all the people of the visitors of Mecca in Hajj and Mina. And Muzdalifah. And Arafat. He would visit everybody. No one would listen to him. In fact, Abu Lahab would walk behind him, pelting him with pebbles. And telling everybody, do not listen to him, he's our madman. In that same season of Hajj, in the 50th year of his life, a strange thing happened. The Prophet ﷺ passed by a group of people who were seated. He didn't go out looking for them, but he passed by them. So when he passed by them, he asked them who they are. And they said, we are from Yathrib. We are, there were only six of them. We are from the city of Yathrib, an oasis city uh, to the north of Mecca. So the Prophet ﷺ engaged in conversation with them. And this was a strange thing. He, never, he went searching for everybody else, but nobody believed in him. He didn't go out searching for these people, but they happened to be there. And he spoke to them. There were only six of them. All six were from the tribe of Khazraj. And there and then, in that same meeting, in the conversation, all six embraced Islam. They then told the Prophet ﷺ, you are the person we are looking for. You are the one that we have been hearing the Jewish rabbis of of Yathrib, remember it wasn't called Medina, of Yathrib, speak about for a long, long time. You are the kind of person we need to restore peace and stability and brotherhood in our uh, war-torn city of Yathrib. So they said, we believe in you, we shall follow you. And we promise to meet you again next year. We want everything immediately. Imagine, can you imagine? 
The Prophet ﷺ being told by this new group of people who suddenly believed in him that we will see you again, but in 12 months' time. Next year. Next year, 12 of them came. Five of the original six, five new ones, uh, seven new ones. And ten were from the tribe of Khazraj, only two were from the tribe of Os. Twelve of them came and they embraced Islam. But again, they had to meet the Prophet ﷺ in secret. So this was the second meeting. The first meeting, there was no pledge. The first meeting of six was only embracing Islam. In the, in the 52nd year of... Well, in the next year, in the 51st year. The next year. I say 51st or 52nd because it depends on how you calculate the years. But in the first meeting after the death of Abu Talib, only six embraced Islam. Then in the next year's Hajj, 12 came, they all embraced Islam. And on that occasion, they actually pledged their support for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam sent Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiyallahu an with them to Medina. He stayed for one year in Medina and through his wonderful work, and this was amazing, how the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was able to influence the people of Mecca. Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiyallahu an was a trendsetter and a fashion icon of Mecca. He was young, he was handsome, he wore the best clothes. In fact, the word in Mecca was that people would smell the fragrance in the air and no one would be around and people would say, Mus'ab ibn Umayr has passed by here. Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiyallahu when he met Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he shunned all of that. And a few years later, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam signaled to him, he travelled to Medina, worked hard, wonderfully. He converted many people to the religion of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasallam. So much so that even the chieftains of Medina. Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh radiyallahu an, and the other famous leaders of the clans, he, he invited them, they embraced Islam. That same Sayyidina Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiyallahu an, a few years later, when he was martyred in the battle of Uhud, they could not find sufficient shrouding to com- completely cover his body. If they shrouded his head, his legs remained exposed. If they shrouded his lower body, his head remained exposed. They had to put plants and grass over him in order to complete his coffin and his shroud. And that was the same person who used to wear single suits of clothes that were worth hundreds of dirhams at one time. But the effect that Rasulullah had on such people, it's amazing. So Muslim ibn Umayr travelled to Medina. The next year in Hajj, 75 people came from Medina, including two ladies. And again, secretly, they pledged their support for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But this was, the, this was the third meeting, but the second pledge. And the second pledge was different from the pledge of last year. The year before, the pledge was only to follow, to obey, to invite, and to support. But not defend. Not defend. But in the third meeting, 
the 75, now with the chieftains of Medina, they actually pledged their support fully to the extent that just before they finally made their pledge, the leaders reminded the others that do remember what you are pledging. Because now, if we pledge our full support to Muhammad ibn Abdullah, this means that we make enemies of the whole of Arabia. But they still pledge their support. This was now the signal for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Those Muslims went back and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam began sending his followers uh, to Medina to do hijrah. One by one in small groups they began to leave until almost 70 followers of Rasulullah had left. The only people remaining in Makkah al-Mukarramah were those who were too weak and suppressed to travel. And the Prophet ﷺ, the, the women folk in the families, the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Bakr radiallahu an, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu an, and one or two others. Now the time came. The Quraysh had been witnessing all of this and observing. And now they were te- terrified. That if the Muslims set up base elsewhere, and they now have the support of the chieftains of Medina, and they are able to set up a community in the city of Medina, in Yathrib, the Quraysh feared even more, because that was a route, their caravan route to Sham, their lifeline, their bloodline, their trade route passed by Medina. This would mean that even their trade routes were cut off because to the west of Medina was their routes to Sham and to the east of Medina was their route to Iraq and to Persia. And these were trade routes. So for political and economic reasons, the Quraysh now feared. So their persecution of the remaining believers became very intense. And now since he no longer had the support of Banu Hashim, but only Banu Nawfal. But even that was in a way withdrawn. The Quraysh now decided, we must rid ourselves once and for all of Muhammad ibn Abdullah. This is where that verse comes in. When Allah says in Surah Al-Anfar, وَإِذْ يَمْكُرُ بِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيثْبِتُوكَ أَوْ يَقْتُلُوكَ أَوْ يُخْرِجُوكَ وَيَمْكُرُونَ وَيَمْكُرُ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ خَيْرُ الْمَاكِرِينَ And remember when... Those who disbelieved were plotting against you, that they keep you, or that they slay you, or that they expel you, and they plot, and Allah plans, and Allah is the best of planners. What happened is that the Quraysh gathered in their meeting place, their council, and there they openly tabled the motion that we must do something about Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Now it wasn't to do with them. Followers. It was specifically Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Some of them said, let us imprison him. That's the meaning of, they were plotting that they may keep you. Keep you in the sense that they may imprison you. Others said, no, let us drive him away from the city. But others said, well, that's exactly what we want to avoid. Because if we drive him away from the city, his followers have left. If they set up camp elsewhere, this will mean trouble for us. So others said, well, let's imprison him. And the response to that was, well, if you imprison him, 
his followers who have left the city will come back with the followers of Medina and try to rescue him. So eventually they agreed, and Abu Jahl was the chief motivator behind this. He said, and the others agreed with him, that our only solution is to kill Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And the way to do it, says, remember that fear of retaliation and protection of the clans, they said the way to do it is that we the Quraysh are united in our opposition to Muhammad. So why don't we do this? One person doesn't kill him, but rather we take a young warrior from each of the powerful clans of Mecca and collectively all of them strike Muhammad at one time. They strike Muhammad at one time. And therefore the responsibility for the blood of Muhammad will be distributed amongst all the warriors of the many powerful clans of Mecca and of the Quraysh. Banu Hashim will not be able to retaliate against all of us. And then they will have to settle for blood money. They were so ruthlessly and cold-bloodedly discussing the blood money of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam as a foregone conclusion that we will kill him and then we'll pay the blood money but Hashim will settle for the blood money. They agreed, they surrounded the, a time came, they surrounded the house of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam at night. But that same night, prior to that, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam had been making his own preparations. And earlier on that day, Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates in a very beautiful hadith. She says, I remember when I was in Mecca that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would visit us every day at least twice. Once in the morning, once in the evening. One day, suddenly, at noon, at high noon, in the heat of midday, when most people would be asleep, we heard a knock on our door and... Startled when we opened the door, in came Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam with his head covered. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said, Surely a great thing must have brought the Messenger of Allah at this hour. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam sat down. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu sat next to him. Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha and her sister Asma bint Abi Bakr were both present. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam looked very concerned. And he looked at the ladies and he said to Abu Bakr radiallahu an, can you request them to leave? So Abu Bakr radiallahu an said, Ya Rasulullah, they are my family after all. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not request him a second time and then he spoke to him about what he came for. And he said to Abu Bakr radiallahu an, I bring you glad tidings. I have now received permission from Allah to leave the city. Imagine... Everything was done by permission. Even though he feared for his life, he would not leave the city until Allah granted him permission. So he said, permission has been granted for me to do hijrah. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's face lit up. Umm Aisha radiallahu anha describes the scene. And then she says, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was asked by Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, what about me? The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, and permission has been granted to you also to accompany me. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says, till that day, I could never understand, and I could never believe, that a person could weep so much out of joy, 
But when the Prophet ﷺ told my father that he had been granted permission to accompany him on this hijrah, my father burst out sobbing in tears of joy, and he wept profusely, continuously out of happiness. Then Abu Bakr said to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, I have prepared two camels. He called his uh, man who brought the camels. Imagine at that moment, the Prophet ﷺ sat there and he said to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, Oh Abu Bakr, I refuse to take this camel unless I pay for it. At such a moment. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu insisted. The Prophet ﷺ insisted. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu fell silent. Then the agreement was that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, imagine that he, the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu hired a tracker and a guide, who was a non-Muslim, Abdullah ibn Uqayt. He was a non-Muslim. So they agreed with him that he would bring the camels three nights from now. So Abdullah ibn Uqayt left with the camels. The Prophet ﷺ left. They began making their preparations. That evening, he fell asleep early, immediately after Isha. And then... At approximately midnight, he rose and went to the Al-Masjid Al-Haram. And before that, he told Ali radiallahu an to sleep in his place. He rose, went to the Masjid, performed tawaf, and thereafter he went to the house of Abu Bakr radiallahu an. He, in fact, according to some narrations, he came back home. And then, by that time, the Quraysh had gathered. The young warriors of Quraysh surrounded the house. The Prophet ﷺ came out, bent down, picked up some dust, saw earth, and threw it in the direction of the young warriors of the Quraysh, and read the verse of Surah Yasin, وَجَعَلْنَا مِنْ بَيْنِ أَيْدِيهِمْ سَدًّا وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ سَدًّا فَأَخْشَيْنَاهُمْ فَهُمْ لَا يُبْصِرُونَ And we placed a barrier before them and behind them, and we cast a cloud over them so they could not see. And in front of them, the Prophet ﷺ slipped away. And they were clueless. They waited all night. The Prophet ﷺ went to Abu Bakr anhu's house. And there they both left secretly. And along with Abu Bakr anhu's servant, Amir ibn Fuhayra. And they made their way to the... They left the city of Mecca from the south towards Yemen. And then from there they broke uh, in a different direction and climbed up to Mount Thawr, where they took refuge in one of the caves. Now, as the Prophet ﷺ was leaving Mecca on the outskirts, he actually turned around, and addressing the city of Mecca, he said, O Mecca, you are indeed the most beloved place of all places on earth to me. You are the most sacred of all places on earth to Allah. And you are the most beloved of all places to Allah. And if it wasn't for the fact that I am being driven out, I would never leave you. And then with longing words, he left. Prophet ﷺ and travelled to the cave of Thawr, and there they remained. Quraysh began in the morning, just before dawn, they rushed and stormed the house. And they found Ali in bed. 
they interrogate to say that Ali radiallahu anhu he didn't know of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's plans. In fact, they actually took him away, tied him up, and severely beat him. But there, he, he was not their focus, and eventually they released him and let him go. They began looking for the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and answers were made. One hundred camels prize for the bounty hunter who brings the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam dead or alive. And people began traveling in all directions searching for them. Prophet said Abu Bakr who remained for a couple, for three whole days. There's a lot of detail, we don't really have time. But they would remain in the cave and only at night would they come out. Abu Bakr and son Abdullah would visit them with news and Amir ibn Fuhira, his servant, would bring some goats. And they would milk them at night and feed the Prophet ﷺ. And eventually, after three nights, uh, Abdullah ibn Uqaits came with the camels and they left. But prior to that, something uh, well, something very important happened, which is that the Quraysh, in their search, they actually reached the mountain and they even reached the mouth of the cave where Abu Bakr and the Prophet ﷺ were hiding. And in the cave, one of the incidents that took place is the love of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, Akbar. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fell asleep. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu placed his noble head in his lap. And the holes they had filled with rags and pieces of cloth and other stones... But there was one hole which remained open. Abu Bakr radiallahu and blocked it with his feet. He was bitten. And when he was bitten, he felt the poison. But he did not stir. He did not stir. Because he did not want to wake up Rasulullah whose noble head was nested in his lap. Imagine... Abu Bakr was a grown man. He was a friend. But that's, that was a relationship between the Prophet and his followers. Eventually when the Quraysh, some members of the Quraysh and their hunters, they reached the mouth of the cave, Abu Bakr because they were hidden, and the mouth of the cave was higher, at head height. And the rocks that led the rocky part, the sledge that the ledge that led to the cave was at iron head height. So Abu Bakr was staring out and he could see the Quraysh, the warriors of the Quraysh, their their feet and their legs and their sandals. He could see them roaming around searching. The Quraysh was suspicious and that's why they were searching very closely. And Imam Ahmad bin Hamr rahmatullahi relates that they actually came and inspected the mouth of the cave. But a spider had spun a web. And this is actually in an authentic narration. So a spider has spun a web. And prior to that, Abu Bakr radiallahu he said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, on one occasion he was weeping during the hijrah. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to him, Oh Abu Bakr, why do you weep? And he said, Ya Rasulullah, I do not weep for my sake, I weep because of you. I weep for you. 
So on this occasion as well, Abu Bakr radiallahu anh exclaimed, Ya Rasulullah, they are close to capturing us. I can see their feet. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi was totally calm and said to him, O oh, Abu Bakr, مَا ذَنُّكَ اللَّهُ What do you think of two people whose third is Allah? لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَنَا do not grieve, for Allah is with us. And the Quraysh actually closely inspected the mouth of the cave. But when they saw that spider web, they concluded that no one could have entered this cave. And they moved on. Imagine, they were bent on killing Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The entire history of Islam, the changed history of the world, all that we know about Islam, about the Qur'an, about the Sunnah, about religion. Everything between that and its total absence was one web of a spider. Imagine. When they left the Prophet wasallam three nights, uh, on the third night, Abdullah ibn Uqayt came and the four of them left. The Prophet wasallam Abu Bakr and Abdullah ibn Uqayt, the non-Muslim guide and tracker, and Amir ibn Fahira, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu servant. They travelled, I've explained, they passed by the tent of Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyah. This was another miraculous incident on the way to the Hijrah. What the Abdullah ibn Uqayt did is that he again took them westwards. So they went east, they went south and then east towards Thawr. Now when they came out of Thawr, they didn't head north, bypassing Mecca. Again, to confuse the Quraysh, uh, Abdullah ibn Uqayt took them from the south of Mecca westwards, and then back up north along the Red Sea route. Uh, this was a non-used route towards Medina. He was, a, uh, he was an expert tracker and a guide. And they managed to avoid everybody. En route, they passed by the te- a tent. Remember, they had no food, just very little food, just milk. They passed by a tent. When they passed by a tent, there was an old lady, all alone, with one one animal, emaciated. Prophet ﷺ and the companion stopped, and they asked if she had any food. She said no. They said, do you have any milk? She said no. So they said, can that animal produce any milk? Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa asked. She said, it's too weak to do anything. Prophet sallallahu said, may I try to milk it? She said, go ahead. Prophet sallallahu summoned the animal and then he himself with his noble hands took hold of its udders and prayed over it and began milking. He asked for a container, huge container, miraculously. In fact, the reason that one animal was still there, the old lady said that all of our animals have gone to pasture and to graze with my husband. But this animal was too weak to travel. So this is why it's still here. Prophet ﷺ took that same animal, prayed over its other others with his own noble hands. He began milking. It immediately produced milk. He filled the container, gave it to the lady first. She drank to her fill. 
then Abdullah ibn Uqayt, and Amir ibn Fuhayra, and then Abu Bakr radiallahu an, and then finally Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And it was only when he drank, as happened on many occasions, that the milk disappeared. Then he took the empty container again, and he milked a second time, filled it, handed it to Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyya, and left it with her. Then as they were leaving, Allahu Akbar, he's fleeing for his life. He's being hunted by bounty hunters. All he has done is rendered a favor to Umm Ma'bad, the old lady, by miraculously producing milk from milkless animal. But as he was leaving, Rasulullah paid her for her milk. He paid for the camel of Abu Bakr and he pays for the milk of Umm Ma'bad. And he travels onwards. She embraced when her husband returned and she told him of the miraculous incident. He said, this is the companion, the man of Quraysh that everybody has been speaking on. I have resolved that I will travel to Yathrib and I will, because they realize that he's traveling to Yathrib and I will embrace. Eventually, and then the famous incident of Suraq ibn Malik ibn Ju'sham, the bounty hunter, we covered it in Tajreed al-Sari'ah. He say he was a pay, he was actually one of the chieftains of his clan, Banu Mudlij. And he says, I was seated, I was he was a warrior chieftain. I was seated with a group of my companions when some of the town criers came and said that Muhammad has fled. Anyone who can find Muhammad along with Abu Bakr will enjoy the bounty of a hundred camels. So Suraq ibn Malik ibn Ju'sham says that he sent some of his spies and messengers. Someone came and he was seated with a group of people and they told him that, oh, someone has spotted figures along the Red Sea coast. So Suraq ibn Malik ibn Ju'sham said to that person, no, 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 they are mistaken. I know who you are talking about. It's actually this group of people. What he wanted to do is divert everyone's attention and mislead them because he wanted the bounty for himself. So he waited for a while and then he slipped away from the gathering, went home, got his uh, steed and his uh, weapons prepared, and then he rode off in pursuit of Rasulullah He knew the location. He approached. We covered it in the Tajid al-Sarih. Surah Qutun Malik ibn Ju'sham says that I was intent on capturing Muhammad ibn Abdullah and claiming the hundred camel bounty. As I approached, all of us, and I saw them in the distance, all of a sudden, my horse came to a screeching halt, and its legs dug in, its forelegs dug into the ground, and I fell off. I rose. I wondered what had happened. He was a pagan. I took out my Islam, my arrows of divination. And they used to have arrows, which was like a lottery. Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? So he ruffled the arrows in the bag, and then took the arrows out, one arrow out, and which one was it? It said, do not go ahead with it. So it, 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 was simply, it was simply yes or no. The arrow said no. But he was so greedy and intent on the bounty that he opposed his own divination. And even though the arrow said no, he said, I ignored the arrow, put it back in the back, put it back in the bag, climbed my steed, lifted it out, and travelled onwards. I could see them in distance as I approached. I saw Abu Bakr. And he kept on furtively glancing back at me, worried. 
I came so close that I could actually hear the Prophet ﷺ reciting Qur'an. But he did not even glance back once. Allahu Akbar. Only Abu Bakr was furtively looking back. Then as I approached closer, again the forelegs of my steed, my horse, dug into the ground and it halted. I pulled, I goaded, I hit the, and I lashed my horse, but it wouldn't move. Eventually, when I pulled it out, it was, I had to pull it out with such force from the earth, and the forelegs came out with such force that a cloud rose, of, uh, like smoke. And then I pulled out the arrows of divination, and I checked again, and again it said, no. Then I realized that there is no way I am able to capture Muhammad ibn Abdullah, and there is something different about this man. So I approached Abu Bakr with a signal of peace, and then the Prophet turned around. I conversed with them. I told the Prophet of everything, of what the Quraysh were up to. Eventually, it's a long story, I've only been very brief. The Prophet ﷺ told him, you may go. He didn't request anything from him, just one thing. Do not inform anyone about us. Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jushim agreed that I will not inform anyone about you. But he said, give me something that I can have for security from you. The Prophet ﷺ instructed Abu Bakr and he had a, a note written for uh, Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jushim. And... Suraq ibn Malik ibn Jashim held on to that note for many years until the Prophet ﷺ performed Umrah from Ji'rana in the eighth year of Hijrah after the conquest of Mecca. And at Ji'rana, Suraq ibn Malik ibn Jashim came. And until then, he was still known as a pagan of the Quraysh. And when he came, others tried to block him. And he produced that guarantee from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and Suraqat al-Malik ibn Jashim was granted permission he came and there he embraced Islam in front of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and showed him the guarantee the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told Suraqat al-Malik ibn Jashim that oh Suraqah he gave him the glad tidings that you will one day wear the gold jewellery and the rings and the bangles of Khosrow, the emperor of Persia. And in those days, the, the, the Persia was a superpower. A superpower not just militarily, but culturally, of language, of culture. So Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jushim said, Ya Rasulullah, of Kisra? The Prophet ﷺ said, yes. Many years later, when the Persian Empire was brought down and the treasures of Khosra, of Kisra, were captured and they were sent back to Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anh. Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anh actually took hold of the jewellery and the bangles and he summoned Suraqat ibn Malik ibn Jashim and called him and then he made him wear the jewellery as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And then he sent criers with him along the streets of Medina to say, all praise be to that Allah who removed the bangles from the emperor of Persia and gave them to where? To a Bedouin of Banu Mudlij. 
as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I mention that because who would have thought so many years later, and yet calmly the Prophet ﷺ gives his guarantee, Surah Abdul Malik bin Jirsham. In any case, the journey continues until the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Medina. He first enters the city or the oasis of Medina through the settlement of Quba. There he remains for a few days. He was well received. And they established the first masjid, the masjid of Quba. And then eventually they moved on from Quba towards the center of the city as we know it today, uh, passing by. Uh, he left Quba on Jumu'ah, and then he prayed the first Jumu'ah in another part of the oasis and settlement. And then from there they moved on to the center of the city where he took up residence and where we now have the masjid. Now, also, I said there were two verses. Remember the cave... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, many years later, many, many years later in Medina, Allah revealed a verse of Surah At-Tawbah. And the verse was, إِلَّا تَنْصُرُوهُ فَقَدْ نَصَرَهُ اللَّهِ إِذَا خَرَجَهُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا ثَانِي اثْنَيْنِ إِذْهُمَا فِي الْغَارِ إِذْ يَقُولُ لِصَاحِبِهِ لَا تَحْزَنْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَنَا فَأَنْزَلَ اللَّهُ سَكِينَتَهُ عَلَيْهِ وَأَيَّدَهُ بِجْنُودٍ لَمْ تَرَوْهَا وَجَعَلَ كَلِمَةَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا السُّفْلَى وَكَلِمَةُ اللَّهِ هِيَ الْعُلْيَا وَاللَّهُ عَزِيزٌ حَكِيمٌ Allah says, if you will not assist him addressing the people of Medina and wider at that time, if you will not assist him, then indeed Allah has already assisted him. When those who disbelieved expelled him, when Thaniath name, he was a second of the two in the cave, when he was saying to his companion, La tahzan, do not grieve, inna Allah ma'ana, indeed Allah is with us. So Allah let down on his messenger, on him, his tranquility, and assisted him with hosts and armies that you could not see. وَجَعَلَ كَلِمَةَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا السُّفْلَى And he lowered and made base the word of the disbelievers. وَكَلِمَةُ اللَّهِ هِيَ الْعُلْيَى And the word of Allah, it is supreme. And Allah is almighty, all wise. That verse was revealed much later, but it speaks beautifully about that one critical moment in the history of Islam and the history of the world. When... So much hung in fine balance. So much was predicated on that one cave. But Allah assisted him. Allah works in miraculous ways. But these were two main verses of the Holy Quran that dealt with the hijrah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. A lot more can be said. Now I'll just end with one or two main things, which is this, this was some detail about the actual hijrah. Why is it so significant? Why was it... Okay, certain miraculous things took place, but in the grand picture overall, why was it such a watershed? It was a sacred journey, but why was it a watershed? Why was it a point of change? The reason is, look at the history. Look at the whole history of Islam till the time the Prophet ﷺ left. And then once he arrived in Medina, everything changed. Islam as we know it today, in reality, began in Medina. What I mean is, salah with congregation, prayers in congregation, the masjid, the adhan, the community, the ummah, sadaqah, 
zakah in this general way. Of course, some of these things existed before, but the the Islam that we know, that we understand, that we see, that the world knows and sees, in reality, that did not begin till after the hijrah. The laws and the teachings mainly did not begin till after the hijrah. That was a watershed. The history of the world changed with the single journey of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa from Makkah to Medina. It means so much. And prior to that, as Allah says, they were plotting to imprison you or to kill you. And what happened after that? Quraysh relentlessly pursued him. They did not give up. In the second year of Hijrah, the Battle of Badr, even Medina was hostile. Sections of Medina were hostile. In the third year of Hijrah, the Battle of Uhud. In the fifth year of Hijrah, the campaign or the Battle of the Trench. Barely five years after the Hijrah, Rasulullah turns around after the campaign of the Trench and says, from this day onwards, never will Makkah march against us, but we shall march against them. And indeed, that's what happened. I've been through this in detail. In the sixth year of Hijrah, he even travelled to do Umrah. They refused entry. Seventh year of Hijrah. Many things happened. Eighth year of Hijrah. Remember, just before the conquest of Mecca, Mecca Abu Sufyan and Quraysh came begging for Rasulullah to ratify the treaty and not to consider it invalid and void because of the transgressions of one of the allies of the Quraysh. And then in the eighth year of Hijrah, barely eight years, and the Prophet never for a moment doubted his mission. We learn from narrations that when he was traveling en route, the Hijrah, to Medina, he passed by the place of Jaffa, which we've covered in Kitab al-Hajj, which runs parallel to um, the Red Sea and the coast, the Red Sea coast. It runs parallel, very close. And today, Jaffa doesn't exist, but it's very close to the modern-day modern town of Rabir. And we've covered Jaffa in detail in Kitab al-Hajj. But when he was at Jaffa, Prophet ﷺ turned around and longingly looked in the direction of Makkah al-Mukarramah. Of course, it was very far away, couldn't be seen, but he looked in the direction. Longing for Makkah al-Mukarramah, and praying to Allah on his way to Medina as part of the Hijrah. Allah revealed a verse of Surah Al-Qasas to him on that occasion. And the verse is immensely powerful. Allah said to him, إِنَّ الَّذِي فَرَضَ عَلَيْكَ الْقُرْآنَ لَرَادُكَ إِلَى مَعَادٍ Indeed, that's Allah who has given you the Qur'an, he will most assuredly return you to the abode of return. Meaning Makkah al-Mukarramah. He is fleeing for his life, and yet Allah is telling him, Allah will most assuredly return you. And that's exactly what happened. Eight years later, what happened? Prophet ﷺ marched into Makkah as a conqueror, but as a humble servant of Allah. Makkah embraced the tribes embraced, the whole of Arabia embraced. Two years later, Prophet ﷺ had departed from this, from this world. But Abu Bakr and took on the mantle of leadership. Then following him, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab And that one hijrah, that one journey changed not only the history of the Muslims, if it wasn't for that hijrah, we wouldn't be seated here discussing Allah and his messenger and the hijrah. Makkah wouldn't be what it is. Today we see images 
of millions of people converging on the city of Mecca. Sometimes I like to think and imagine the Kaaba and the Mataf and the precincts of Al-Masjid Al-Haram as it was during the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Mecca. There the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa is performing tawaf whilst chieftains of the Quraysh are jeering at him. Jeering him. Taunting him. There the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa fell down into prostration and one of the most evil ones of the Quraysh rose and brought the afterbirth and the amniotic sack of a she-camel that had just given birth and dumped it on the noble back of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam of such heavy weight that he could not rise from his sajda. Fatima radiyallahu anha, the little girl, comes running out and shifts the amniotic sack from his back and abuses the chieftains of the Quraysh for having witnessed this spectacle of the Quraysh taunting and inconveniencing and troubling and hurting her noble father in this way. Look at the mataf and imagine Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an reciting Surah Yasin and the chieftains of the Quraysh along with their uh, urchins and their vagabonds piling on top of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an and beating him senseless. Those were the scenes before the hijrah and after the hijrah today Millions converge on that same place. What a transformation. What a change. Before he couldn't do sajda. Now there is no adhan, there is no tashahud, there is no salah without the name of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And we have elevated your mention. Jibreel alayhi salam asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. O Prophet of Allah, do you know what Allah means when he says in Surah Al-Nashrah, we have elevated your mention? He said, no. Jibreel alayhi salam said, Allah has undertaken that never will his name be mentioned, except that your name will be mentioned in conjunction with his. In Adhan, in Salah, at the birth of a child, at the funeral prayer of the deceased, and throughout life, when a Muslim is born, when a Muslim dies, when a Muslim marries, when a Muslim does, when he prays throughout the name of Allah and the name of his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But none of that would have been possible without the hijrah. And this is why during the khilafah of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu he gathered the noble companions, the chief ones amongst them, and he discussed with them. Eventually they collectively agreed and he passed the decree that the calculation of the calendar, the tabulation of the calendar, and all records of the Islamic Empire would be according to the lunar calendar, of course, because that already existed. But when should they mark the beginning? What should they set as a standard? And under the leadership of Sayyidina Umar, they collectively agreed that this would be from the moment of hijrah. But interestingly, the hijrah actually took place, the Prophet ﷺ arrived in the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. He arrived in Medina in the month of Rabi'ul Awwal. So the third month of uh, the Islamic calendar. But the, the calendar of hijrah isn't fixed to start at the time of the Prophet ﷺ's arrival. But rather, 
When the Prophet ﷺ arrived, that was a month of Rabi'ul Awwal. And prior to that was the second month of Safar. And prior to that was the first month of Muharram. So Sayyidina Umar fixed that first month of Muharram as the beginning of the Islamic calendar. So uh, approximately two months and three, ten days before approximately, before the actual arrival of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina. Anyway, that is the origin of the Islamic calendar, and we are now in the 10th day of the first month of the 1434th year of the Prophet ﷺ's hijrah. A lot more can be said, but indeed, this was a miraculous journey, and it was a watershed, not only for the history of the Muslims and the history of the Arabs, and not only for the history of the Arabian Peninsula, but in reality, for the history of the whole world. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand the significance of the hijrah. May Allah make us amongst those who learn, and who appreciate, and who benefit from the lessons of the hijrah. And may, in fact, the Prophet sallallahu the hijrah was so great that after the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ said, there is no hijrah after this. La hijrah ba'd al-fatih. Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas anhu relates a hadith recorded by a Muslim in his sahih, <coughs> that the Prophet ﷺ said, La hijrah ba'd al-fatih. There is no hijrah, there is no emigration after the conquest of Mecca. And... <coughs> I remind us of that first hadith which I mentioned that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa says in a hadith recorded by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim in their sahih from Abdullah ibn Amr ibn Aas radiyallahu anhum that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said al-Muslimu man salim al-Muslimun min lisanihi wa yadi the Muslim is he from whose tongue and hand other Muslims are safe wal-muhajiru man hajara ma nahallahu an and the muhajir the real emigrant is one who shuns what Allah has forbidden. Our hijrah is now main. There is no hijrah from Mecca to Medina. That hijrah has ended after the conquest of Mecca. But our hijrah can be in many ways. And one of the ways that our hijrah is, is to abandon and shun what Allah has forbidden. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Enable us to understand wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashidu wa la ilaha illa ant nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions For additional lectures and products please visit www.akstore.com We can also be contacted by phone on double zero double four. One two one double seven one three triple seven, or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions. All rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.